Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 26 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name is Rod Murray, and as some of you have pointed out in the last week or two, been too long since our last episode, so we'll consider this an emergency convening of the State of the Game panel. So what's the stuff that matters this time around? What will be on the table today? Well, as always, there's no shortage of material, everything from a wrap-up of the Open and US PGA Championships to the Solheim Cup, the new USGA TV deal that caused so much controversy, and I'm sure a million other topics as well. These these topics always emerge when we get these two guys together, Mike Clayton and Jeff Shackleford joining me as always, gents. A welcome to you and let's hook straight into it. Shack, I want to start with you. You were at the Open Championship at Muirfield. Seems a lifetime ago almost. There's been so much yeah. happening in golf. What do you remember about your time there at Muirfield? What was it? Four weeks ago now? Yeah, it was it was an amazing uh, week in every way. You know, the golf course was I was exhausted at the end just my just from walking on the course because it was so hard. I've never walked on ground uh, that hard at a golf tournament, and uh, it, it, so it just it it made the features just uh, pop, and uh, it was such a grueling test. I don't I don't know if that really came through to you guys watching it, but it was it was. Uh, it was an amazing test. You had to just hit such good shots and be so on your game and to watch that. And, and, and then, of course, yeah, it was once again validation of that golf course and that kind of setup. Uh, the leaderboard was, was uh, just incredible. So uh, I was with Tiger the last day, uh, so I didn't get to see Phil hit a single shot, which disappointed me because it sounds like it was one of the great uh, exhibitions on the back nine of precision and and the whole thing, but I got I just saw all sorts of amazing things. Watched him earlier in the week and contrasted him with Rory. It was it was stunning uh, to see where their games are and um, to see the difference between the two and and uh, and then it was just great that Phil won because he's he's it just uh, it puts him on another level with the all time greats. Uh, winning uh, the Open now, just now he's won on uh, different surfaces, if you will, and and um, uh, and and the way he's devoted himself to the thing, it was just it was it was magical in every way. And then I and then the golf and the town and uh, the towns, uh, North Berwick and and Gullen and the whole thing was uh, uh, pretty special. You were on a uh, golf high. You weren't the only one who didn't see a shot of Mickelson's in the final round. Clates, we watched it on television here. I think the first thing we saw of Mickelson might have been on the 11th hole, which is extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, I don't remember that. I thought we saw more of that, but perhaps not. But either way, it was an incredible round. It was, I think Jeff's right. You don't get it. I mean, it's a hard course anyway, Muirfield. And when it's that hard, bouncy, windy, the pressure, that, that was a, one of the great rounds, I thought. Mm. It was interesting. He looked to me, Wushak, you can probably speak to this having been on the ground. I imagine you were there at the post-round press conference. He looked very humbled by the win. Like he spoke Saturday about being well and truly in it and he nominated even par as being the winning score. Of course, he ended up shooting, I think, three under was the total and one by two or three. But he looked almost humbled by the fact that he won like he didn't ever actually expect to win the Open. Did you get that sense, Shaq? Well, the post-round press conference was was kind of weird. Um, he, 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 uh, yeah, he was so uh, engaging uh, earlier in the week. And uh, after the rounds, he was great. But for some reason, in the post-round press conference, he was his answers were kind of short. And I, I asked a question, kind of trying to tee him up um, uh, for a certain kind of answer, and he and he didn't take it. And he even kind of kind of uh, um, it just was awkward. And uh, he, he so I, I think he was in shock. And um, and uh, yeah, I do think he was humbled, and I think he was exhausted too. Yeah, of course, he's, a, he's an interesting character, isn't he, Clates? He turned up at the Callaway office uh, in the following week with the trophy, completely unannounced, just turned up in a pair of shorts and thongs. And then something I think you posted on your site, Shaq, and I know Clates and I both listened to it. He rang into a, a public radio, the NPR show, science uh. show on the Friday afternoon, just out of nowhere and started sort of talking about science and how important it had been in his life and how he attaches it to golf. He's a bizarre and, figure. And he? and he and he posted on jeffshackleford.com defending his... Uh, his uh, three wood strategy, really? uh, and and getting on somebody about the uh, the long time fig jam reference to him. So <laughs> yes, if you that. go to the site and um, mm -hmm. um, Google uh, Frankenwood and uh, or not Google, search uh, Frankenwood, you'll you'll see he he uh, gets into all of his club specs and it's it's quite a quite an entertaining post. But um, uh, he was definitely energized by the whole thing, and and I don't see him playing well the rest of the year. I mean that is just what he did is amazing. He put his heart into it, 
uh, and and he he came through in the clutch, and it's like what? Else? I mean, the rest of the year you look at everything else. It's like who cares? I just won the Open at Muirfield. Uh, I beat an amazing leaderboard. All these great players at the top of their game. Uh, it's it's just one of those kind of win for the ages deals. <clears throat> Absolutely. I can't imagine that he's as up about the FedEx Cup as he might have been. So, <laughs> no. Yeah. The Open as it is. Clates, I was interested in Adam Scott's performance. I didn't realise this until a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember where I saw it, but uh, I wrote a little piece about it for a, a little email newsletter that I do. Uh, Adam Scott won the cumulative total for the majors for the year, which is really neither here nor there, and nobody really cares about that. But interesting the change in Adam Scott in the last couple of years. I wonder what other players might be able to learn from this. He's always had the physical talent, Clates, but this... He has been in the mix since 2011. He has virtually not missed being there or thereabouts on Sunday at a major. Um, what are your thoughts there with Adam? And, and most people point to, to Steve Williams being sort of the key change there, apart from the broomstick putter. What do you see there? What's the what 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 makes a player of his physical ability suddenly contend when he didn't used to? Well, the amazing thing, what uh, feature of his early career was that he didn't. So it's not so much that he that he has started to contend, but that he didn't for so long because he was such a terrific player and he did so well. He won the Players' Champs, what, in 2004? So he proved he could beat the best players on a hard course. But it was it doesn't surprise me that he's there all the time now because he's clearly one of the best players in the world. Great. I mean, everyone knows how well he hits the ball. And I mean, I'll, you know, you assume the putters helped a little bit, but his stats were better in 2004 with a short putter than they are now with a long putter. So, I guess what I'm getting at, it seems to me it's more mental than physical clates. I guess that's what I'm trying to get to. Well, 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 those top players. well clearly he's got the confidence to. Mm. I mean, you can see contrasting him with Jeff Ogilvie, who was there for quite a few majors in the, you know, around the time he won the US Open, he, who has, I think, probably not a whole lot of confidence in his game right now, who's not there at all. So, so I think confidence has got a huge part to do with it. But, but yeah, clearly he's a terrific player. He, he, He's there because he hits good shots in the big tournaments on the hard courses under the pressure time after time. He just goes and hits the good shots and gets it done. So, and, you know, so, and how hard is that to do, Clates, to just to major after major after major after major to be right there? And this is sort of three straight years now almost. He's been there for almost sort of 12 consecutive matches. Yeah. He's had well, a chance to win. Clearly it's difficult. I mean, only the, only the best players ever do that sort of stuff. I mean, Nicholas was there most of the time and, uh, Watson at his best and Faldo at his best and Hogan and Snead. So, I mean, clearly the next step is to start winning some of them. I mean, he's won one, but if you know he's got a chance to be, if he starts converting them, he's got a chance to be certainly Australia's best ever player. And to do that, you've got to get past five with Thompson's number. So he's got a chance to do that, but he's getting older. But yeah, and you could harshly criticise him for for wasting the first. <laughs> eight years of majors by never playing well in them. But, you know, he missed a lot of chances early when he was clearly good enough. But now he's there every time. He's got to start really winning them. And, and that was an awful three-putt he made at Muirfield on the 15th hole. I mean, he really he had the lead, I think, with, what, five holes to go, mm-hmm. which he did at Augusta a couple of years ago. So, you know, he he obviously played a great Masters this year, but he's, he's missed a few chances really to, to add to that tally of one. Will, will, will the Open turn into his version of Norman's Masters? We hope not, Clates, but there's been a couple of well, things. Yeah. He's had big chances and, and through his own poor yeah. play uh, hasn't been yeah. able to, not because others have, uh, have taken off. Yeah. Shaq, all that, <clears throat> I guess what I'm getting at there, you mentioned there, I think you followed Rory at the Open. Um, I did earlier in the week, and then yeah. Sunday I was with Tiger and Adam uh, from, from you know literally the driving range until – after the round. Okay, so that, that whole physical versus mental thing, I mean, is Rory hitting the ball so badly that he just can't get it around the course, or is there a confidence thing there, or was there at the time? He seems to be back on the right track a little bit more now, had a decent PGA. But what do you see from observing that? I mean, is, is the quality of the shots just so much worse than it used to be before? No, no, no. It's, no, it's, it's mental and course management. Uh, I mean, I placed a wager uh, uh, on him to miss the cut, and uh, just because I once I saw the golf course, I just knew it's not the kind of course he's capable of managing at this point in his career. He's he doesn't really like the Open Championship weather and and style of golf anyway. He's made that clear. And and then just to go out there and watch the difference between him and Phil and the way they manage the course. And I know people they some people kind of roll their eyes at the way Phil and 
and Bones uh, talk things through. But of course, out there, listening to them, it was there was the greatest moment on Friday afternoon. They get to the fifteenth tee, and the fifteenth hole was just just goofy all week, and it was downwind. Had been into the wind the day before. Rory, uh, you know, is at this point now. He's just bombing driver. He's he's decided to work on his driver for his next event, which was really weird. You know, you'd love to see him do the opposite, kind of say, okay, now you know, I, I'm going nowhere. Why don't I try to figure out how to manage this kind of golf? But it's easier to say that than do it when you're out there battling and you're worn out and you're you're mad and you just want to say screw it. So he's he's bombing driver. So they get up to the 15th tee, and I. It was one of the tees where you could get really close, and there was a nice little crowd around it. It was it was very quiet, and Phil and Bones stood there for for two minutes talking through their options with the bunkers, and and it was, and and one of the options or the main option they were debating was five or six iron because it was two ninety to a fairway bunker, and so they go on and on with this, and he finally hits the shot. He finally hits the six iron. And I turned. There were some 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 guys standing right behind me. I was kneeled down, and and I lo- I just look at them, and they and the one guy immediately goes, you know, I sat on a plane f- or a train for three hours today to listen to that conversation, and we talked then for about five or ten minutes. It just that was one of the most fascinating things they'd ever heard. I and one of the guys chimed in and said, I never thought I'd hear a caddy begging his player to 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 go with the six iron because the five would go two ninety. Um, but just the way Phil was locked in, and and Bones was there, and they were they were dealing with the architecture, and then watching Rory just going out there and banging drivers, it was it was an amazing uh, contrast, and and it was one of those you you hope Rory uh, learned from because that was probably Phil uh, 15 years ago mm. uh, doing that, just saying I ah, screw it, I'm going to hit drivers and get ready for the PGA. Yeah, interesting point. We so often see those conversations get talked over on TV, don't we, Clates? We get most oh. of our, our, TV, <laughs> our golf on TV, don't we? And you get those yeah. TV player conversations, and you're just starting to get into it, and the commentators start talking over the top of it. Most annoying. That is. Faldo's, Faldo does it all the time. It's brutal. Uh, and, and those poor sound guys work so hard to get those moments, too. It's a new microphone, I think, isn't it, Shaq, from about yeah. four or five years ago. Sennheiser came up with a microphone that could pick up sound from 10 or 15 feet quite well uh, for the first time in a long time. So, Because I'm pretty sure uh, Stevie was very protective about the whole audio thing, and it was it was uh, this microphone that kind of ruined it all between him and Tiger and that, you know, they could pick up sound without him being able to block it with the bag and all those sorts of things that he used to. I still don't, I don't understand though, Clates, uh, you might know why, I don't know why this bothers players so much. You know, Phil and Bones are not sharing stock tips. They're not telling dirty jokes about, uh, you know, whatever. They're standing there and having this amazing discussion that you can't overhear really in any other sport. And in this case, of course, you could hear it because the, the gallery was so close to the tee. But players, and they don't seem to mind it, but so many players, you know, the idea of miking players or or uh, picking up sound, they find it offensive. And I, I don't quite, I mean, what do they think they're talking about that's so uh, so important? Well, the miking players, the times they've done it, it's so contrived. I mean, it's just yeah. rubbish doing that. I mean, they, they do it with Norman one year down here. It was just like pathetic. But <laughs> Yeah, um, good choice. Well, well, because, but yeah, the, I mean, the player caddy stuff is always interesting if you can get a get a take on what they're saying. But yeah, yeah, I mean, miking caddies and players never works because it's because it just becomes contrived. But if you can just get in yeah. there and hear what they're saying, then it's so much better. It's like reality TV, isn't it, Clates? As soon as you put a camera there, it's no longer reality. Yeah, well, it's, that's right. It's changed the dynamic immediately. Uh, yeah, and you don't get. Uh, you don't get the real stuff. What else did you take from the open in particular, Shaq? There was talk that the crowds were down because of the ticket prices, which sounded yeah. pretty expensive from what I heard. What was the general feel sort of on the ground and around the place? Was it, was it, a, you've been to opens before? Uh, how did it compare? Yeah, the, uh, the first two days, the, uh, it was really noticeable. And that was, uh, they pretty much ran off all the seniors, uh, who like to come out on the weekdays and watch the open and not deal with this quite as big a crowds. Well, they, they, they definitely had smaller crowds, but they, they also just lost a lot of the, the older uh, spectators. So that was, that was really a shame because it was a beautifully run event. The transportation getting there, they, they handled incredibly well. Uh, in fact, when you went into the towns, really, they weren't quite as overwhelmed, the restaurants and different things as, uh, as people expected. But uh, so that was a that was uh, probably why Peter Dawson didn't have his Monday uh, post open 
press conference. He didn't really want to uh, have to answer questions about that because I, I'm trying to remember the price now. I'll, I'll look it up, but uh, seventy something quid for a day, I think. Yeah, it was it was steep, and um, so. But other than that, no, it was uh, everything about it was was really incredible, and and uh, I was actually almost surprised how how much they let the course get firm and fast. They got. They just got so close to losing it, and the fifteenth hole really was over the top and and uh, uh, pretty goofy. Um, once it started playing downwind, the, the green was just too fast, and um, and you know then it's so fun though also to see how much these guys still resist uh, landing the ball short. You know, Tiger, uh, in kind of hindsight, thinking back, and I wrote a story about it, but you know he. he the killer for him were the he played beautifully, but other than the, he had a couple of long three putts and 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 those happened on holes where he tried to play a big aerial approach. And the one time he tried to play a bump and run, he hit it about six inches on fourteen on Sunday, but he got into trouble when he didn't play links golf uh, when so he didn't why, get the ball on the ground. Why would he do that, Shaq? He has proved time and again <laughs> when he's won at the Open, he is more than capable of playing the ground game brilliantly. Why yeah. would he turn his back on that? What is the, yeah, it, what, what's the go? I don't know. He seems to have, he has two neuroses on, on, on the links right now. Uh, and, and one of them is the same one he had last year where when he needs to shape it right to left because of the wind, uh, he will not do it with his driver for whatever reason. So he put himself in a couple of bad spots uh, Saturday and then on Sunday uh, same, because he just wouldn't hit the driver. Um, uh, I don't know if he just worries about getting it up in the wind and hitting some big balloon shot right or what. Um, and then he just has this um, ultra-conservative approach that, and for whatever reason, he just certain shots he doesn't feel – he can bump and run, and, and so he blamed after the round. He felt like the approaches had been overwatered, um, and they might have been, but they were still so firm that uh, had he played run-up shots, I just don't think he leaves himself with, with 100 footers. Hmm. Clades, what's your take on sort of this new target? The swing is clearly different. The game plan seems to be different. He doesn't seem to hit the, the jaw-dropping shots that he used to, we got used to and probably spoiled by in that period in the first 10 or 12 years of his career, but he's clearly still the best player um, week in and week out and struggling in the big tournaments. you got any theory about that or is that just golf? One week you've got it, one week you don't. He was, he was amazing at Firestone and, well, rubbish at the PGA, basically. Yeah, for him, later. relative rubbish, yeah. Um, I don't know, only he knows the answer to that. He, I mean, his swing looks really good to me, but I'm not a – it would be interesting to talk to a teacher who really knew the ins and outs of technique, but it looks good to me. I mean, but it staggers me how – Poorly, he drives the ball. Given that you look at all the, you know, Nicholas, how great he was with the driver, Hogan, Snead, you know, the, the guy Palmer, really, the guys who've been great players have all been great drivers, and he just won't pull the club out. I mean, he barely seems to use it. Hits the three wood well. Yeah, hit the five well, great. Yeah, what's the difference? I mean, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I he was a the year he drove well. That around the time when he was driving well, he had that forty three inch steel shaft and Titleist driver, mm-hmm. which he ripped, and then now he's got this. Big long light junk club that everyone uses. That I wonder if the, the world went back, and it's not going to clear. But if the world went back to persimmon and steel, wh- whether he would be a much better driver than he is with this long junk, and I, and I and I I'm almost sure he would be, hmm. but because they were, they, were, they were much more manageable clubs, and they were you know people just drove the ball. I mean, good drivers drove the ball better with them. It, it, it has changed the game in that way, hasn't it? I mean, there's there's no separation, no great separation in being a great driver of the ball anymore in that everybody pounds it a long way, don't they? I mean, not yeah. all long hitters are good players, but all good players are long hitters in this day and age. It's just a yeah. fact, isn't it? So you've got to hit it. You've got to hit it a long way. Maybe there's more money in the Nike endorsement than in hitting fairways, Clates. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the thing is, he and Stenson, who uses, uses seems to use his three-wood a lot as well, both hit that three-wood forever. I mean, you know, it's not like they're short hitters with their three-woods. They can bomb it out there. 290 or 300 yards, so you can get away with playing with a three-wood. And, and Nicholas used his three-wood a lot, and so, so did Peter Thompson. Graham Marsh told me once that, you know, because Marshy was an incredibly straight hitter, and I, uh, I asked Marshy, who hit more fairways, you or Thompson? He's what Thompson did, but he used his three-wood a lot. So Tiger's not the first guy to use three-woods. I, mean, I think one of the opens, Thompson won, where it was hard and bouncy, he almost exclusively used a three-wood just to keep it in play. It's an interesting but, idea, isn't it? Oh, sorry, Shaq, you were going to say well, the one thing that's different here, though, about Tiger now that's that's um, 
I didn't really get to get into it in my article, but it was uh, so noticeable watching him contrasted with Adam. Um, is he needs the driver because he just doesn't really seem to have the distance advantage he used to have. Now, whether that's everybody getting longer, being in better shape, uh, figuring out how to use the equipment better, younger guys, but um, he's not short by any means, but he doesn't have that ability to uh, to just kind of overpower a hull from time to time. And um, uh, and then, of course, when he gets into the, when he starts missing his three-wood, he's just in places, uh, you know, that were deadly. And so... Um, I know he was testing out new balls at uh, at the PGA, and, and I and the guys who saw him doing it hated it. But he was definitely trying to get something that would give him a little more distance. So he he knows that this is an issue, um, mm. and it's it. But it is kind of amazing to see that that he can when you th- kind of forget that was one of the things he had in his arsenal. One of, as Norman says, his intimidation factor part of it was that ability to to just bomb one when he needed to. That's been gone for a while, though, in fairness, hasn't it? I mean, there's been guys... It seems to be getting worse, though. For, yeah, for, for a decade or so. I saw something interesting. Just on a side note on this idea, and it struck me some time ago that, <clears throat> you know, with the whole debate about how far the ball goes and these new big-headed drives, and that we get to a point one day where the pros wouldn't need to hit a driver and then how the manufacturer is going to sell them. Really interesting clates. I saw an ad on the golf coverage this morning for one of the retailers. There's a Callaway ad saying, the pros are fast with their swing speed, but you're not. We're starting to see it, aren't we, that, you know... The guys like Stenson, Woods, and well, Mickelson. When was the last time Mickelson carried a driver in a major? A few times he's gone out without it. But how's the manufacturer going to sell you a driver that the pros use when the pros are too long to actually use them anymore? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you know, my theory on drivers. Mm. For, for, I played a couple of proms a few weeks ago with these kind of youngish guys who don't play much. There's just this massive high right shot. I mean, they would play. They would score better with Hickory. Mm. I'm convinced of it because they would actually hit 14 fairways instead of six and lose six balls around. I mean, it's just, so for bad players, they're awful clubs, I think. But of course, they hit five or six shots way better than they would ever hit with a wood. So they think it's, you know, the clubs are great. But what about this horrendous shot you hit with these stupid things? It's a basic misunderstanding of golf, isn't it, Clates? That it's a game of hitting it a long way, when in fact, that's the last thing that it is. It's handy at times, but it's not what golf is is actually about. Let's turn our attention to the PGA, Shaq. I think you got there for a couple of days before the tournament started, but not the tournament itself. I won't ask you about the course because I'm not sure that your opinion of it is particularly high necessarily. The setup looked awful on television as far as entertaining golf goes. We had a a bit of a par fest towards the end and the last round was really just a a, a last man standing sort of thing. But what was your take on the whole week? For mine, I thought for the game and for genuine serious golfers, golfers who follow the game week in and week out, Duffner was a fabulous champion and has done a great job publicly since uh, he walked away with uh, with that trophy. Yeah, no, it was a it was a very good week. Um, they they kind of the golf course was set up in a way that they got the winner that um, you, you would hope that kind of setup would reward somebody who sort of uh, is just steady and ball his is a beautiful ball striker and kind of uh, grinds his his way around. It's not our favorite kind of golf to watch, but um, but I, I the contrast with the open is uh, interesting and and. Uh, uh, that's why it's so hard to win win the uh, career Grand Slam because they are still all different even with everything that's happened. So I like that. I I um, I, I like an anytime Jim Furyk doesn't win a major. Uh, so it's always exciting when a young player uh, uh, like him who almost won one before. I always like that. I, I just feel better. Mm. And I think everybody else. I, I think I'm I'm not in the minority there. That when somebody loses one in a playoff in heartbreaking fashion. And then comes out and kind of dominates and wins one pretty assertively. It's it's a it's it's a it's a good feeling uh, about it. And he's a character. Yeah. Well, this is the point. Just on that, he, he lost the first ever major to be won by a long putter to Keegan Gradley in a playoff. Yeah. He's a he's a pretty ordinary putter himself, Jason Duffin, but hasn't Oof. gone that hasn't gone that track. Uses the big grip and continues Oof. to go with the short putter and finally gets redemption. So there's a nice little sort of uh, nice little circular thing happening there, Clades. I'm sure it wasn't your favourite type of golf to watch. What were your th- thoughts on the course as we sort of saw the tournament unfold? There was that was it the fifth hole where. You had to pitch it past the flag, or it came back into the water. About the only, oh um, yeah, only green yeah. that had no rough was the one that went down yeah. down into the water. Some some silly stuff like yeah. that. It looked like from TV. Didn't McElroy suck one off that green and he make did. seven? Or... Well, that, that was the end of him. That was on the last yeah. day, I think, and that was yeah. it. He was in with the show, and then it was all over. I mean, I went to the PGA there when McKeel won two thousand and three, and I thought 
unsurprisingly for me, I thought it was completely over-treed. I mean, it was, the trees were ridiculous. The fairways are narrow. You can see that there was once an incredible course there that I think Trent Jones altered really with the change Ross's bunkering and then it, the trees smothered it and the fairways got narrow and it just became a just another 28-yard wide high rough soft um, US Championship venue, which was, you know, we've seen enough of those. And, and of course, it was so soft that it was a complete contrast to, to, to the Open. You, you, you could barely believe it was the same game, really. Just so, you, you know, the Open, you had guys landing 60 yards short of the green and struggling to keep it on the back. And this thing, you had guys landing it 10 feet past the hole and struggling to keep it on the front. Just your thought on the 18th hole in particular struck me, Clates, and I, actually, I saw a photo sometime during the week of the previous hole, which didn't feature that huge, rough, covered hill in front of it. What's the go with that as a design feature? What do you thought? It seems an extraordinary sort of thing to have on a golf course, but you can't even run it up the hill there, apart from the fact that it's so steep, but it's covered in six-inch rough. It just looked bizarre. Well, that, that, I might be wrong, but I suspect that bank's so steep you, can't even, you couldn't even cut it. If they wanted to cut it as short grass, it's incredibly steep, and, and it's a kind of an unusual green side. It just, but the alternative was to bring the thing fifty yards forward and make it a much shorter hole. So I, you know, I think most designers would have probably put the green up there. It's just the bank's so steep that yeah, you're right, you can't run it up. But you know, it's a, it, it's a, it, it's not a bad hole. You know, as Jeff pointed out, I think it was crazy that those last final tee shots of Duffner and Furyk both didn't run, either stop on the fairway or run into the bunker. And, and the, oh. tournament, the tournament finishes when no one can hit a great shot. The same thing happened at Marion. I mean, whilst Rose, you can make the argument that Rose should have been rewarded for hitting that fairway. There's just no chance for anyone to hit the great shot if you, if you missed the fairway. So Mickelson came to that last hole, drove in the rough, and it's all over. So for me, it's much more exciting if, I mean, give the guy a chance to hit a great shot. Don't just give him a shot where he's gouging it out of the rough and the tournament's over. So, you know, I, I either let the ball run into the bunker or have it on the fairway, not this ridiculous strip of rough, but it's the way Americans set up golf courses. They're not going to... I mean, the bizarre thing for us in Australia is they come to Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and rave about how great the setup is and, and then take absolutely nothing from it. <laughs> to completely you know? ignore it. Yeah. I think as Ogle, as Jeff Ogilvie said when he was on the show, it's amazing. You've got this incredible showpiece at the start of the year in April every year of, of how exciting tournament golf can be. And everyone says that's fantastic, and then goes away and completely ignores it. Yeah. You don't see another tournament yeah. like it all year on the on the sandbelt on American players. Duffner, a big fan. He, he tweeted earlier this year. I think when the uh, the uh, Australian Masters was on, he was watching it from the states. Clates and just tweeted out of nowhere my top five favourite courses: Pebble Beach, blah blah blah. I think Oak Hill was one of them, and Kingston yeah. Heath. Um, exactly, yeah. he'd been down well he played there and played it. He, he, I didn't even know he played there it was crazy that, that week that Tiger Woods came and played the, the, the Masters at Kingston Heath for the first time Duffner played that week and I didn't even know he was there I mean he, he wasn't as famous then but you know that, that week was completely overwhelmed by one player to the point where he might as well have played a one man exhibition but um, Duffner played that week and I think he played well I think he shot yeah, he was fourth, I think, fourth or fifth in the tournament. He, he, he certainly played well there. Well, let's let's hope because he played at uh, Lake Karen up again last year at the Perth International um, with Bo Van Pelt. Was that earlier this year? So let's hope he makes another trip back here, Clates. It seems he likes our golf courses, which would be, well, nice. be, be nice if he came and played the two weeks down here, the Masters and the P and the World Cup. But... Well, Cooch has announced himself for the World Cup now. Does he still get to pick Shaq? Is that how the World Cup still works? That the highest ranked player from that country who accepts the position gets to choose his partner? Is that? I think that's how they used to do it, didn't they? With the world, oh, you had to stump me like that. They used Sorry. to. I, I don't believe. I, I believe that. Uh, I don't just know. Keep going I'll have until, to uh, until two guys say yes, they might be. One. I think that's kind of how it works. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, that's not, generally how it. Be nice if you anyway. invited Duffner. That would be uh, that would be fabulous to see him come back down. No, What's, wait. I think the uh, no. I think they're using the Olympic format. Are, I'll look yeah. it up oh, while we talk. They they're are, using too. the. They're trying. This is basically a. A, uh, a, a an attempt to see what the 2020 Olympic format would might might look like. I think. I think it's the Olympic format. There are 60 players, maximum of four from each country. Yeah, that's right. I think you're right. Yeah. So, so uh, and and basically, it's an individual event. It's not a teams event anymore. It doesn't seem to me the the seven million dollars prize money for the individual and what one million for the teams event. So that to yeah. me makes Hardly it worth turning up as part of the team. <laughs> Yeah. It's only a million bucks, and you'd have to share it, and then yeah. you've got then you'd have to pay 
Tax on it, Shaq. What was uh, Duffin as a character? He seems to me that I don't think the the wider public are going to take to him as uh, as someone. I'll go out and watch in droves. But golfers themselves, he's got this sort of uh, fascination with Hogan, and obviously, you know, the, the course obviously lent itself to that at Oakhill. But he's an interesting character, isn't he? He seems an intelligent sort of bloke who's we've not he really is. heard much of before, uh, much from before. But as Jeff Ogilvy told us, you know, after he won the opening US Open in two thousand six, now everything you say is gospel. So Duffin is going to be moving into that realm i would think yeah i hope so i think he's uh he's refreshing and and he's uh blunt and honest he comes across poorly to some people because he doesn't stand there and smile and he hasn't gone through media training and um but just just uh, the thing that blew me away was that uh well one he referred to mr hogan and mr strange which was was nice but when he when he had that round uh he actually knew what the course record was and and who uh held it and not many guys today would mm. would even know that or have stopped to look at they have a beautiful uh, history display at at oak hill when they redid the clubhouse they i think they kind of created this wall of champions and uh and, and part of that is a is a nice course record uh plaque which which they will now have to uh to alter but uh just the fact that he knew that i think is uh it's just nice we don't we don't get to see that very often anymore most of these guys kind of go from the car to the to the course and uh, i mean there aren't a lot of people who stand there and look at the photos in the locker room or know something about the history of the place they're playing which is uh which is sad mm. But um, so any guy like that is uh, I'm a fan of. Yeah, indeed. I can, as far as I can tell, Shaq, he's only got one flaw, and that is I think he chews tobacco. Is that is that right? He's a tobacco. Yeah, guy. yeah. It's not a great. Well, it's not a great habit. Not a great look for him. But um, um, yeah, maybe maybe in time. A, at least he's not a gym junkie. That's refreshing, isn't it? To see blokes that don't yeah. look like weightlifters playing the game and actually doing well. That's a yeah. That's a uh, that's a refreshing change. The other thing, of course, that happened at the PGA. Um, Shaq, and there's sort of two stories to this. The USGA announced their new TV deal. Let's have a talk about the timing of that announcement first, and then we'll have a look at perhaps some of the repercussions and some of your thoughts on on what that uh, announcement of the USGA and Fox joining forces might actually mean. But firstly, the timing. It was uh, it was on the Wednesday of PGA week. They announced a record television deal. Most suggest this is a bit rude. USGA have defended it. Give us a thumbnail sketch of what unfolded. Yeah, I've I've probably overcovered it on my website because most people don't care. But but there are several little backstories and interesting things going on here. You know, everybody initially just thought it was to upstage the PGA of America, and now as we've we've kind of learned through some articles, um, you know, the USGA has has defended itself by saying, "Well, we this was locked in ten years ago," and um, but the timing to make the decision was not locked in ten years ago, and they definitely rushed the decision. Uh, probably not to upstage the PGA of America. They probably did it because Fox uh, wanted this to happen as quickly as possible because that Saturday they were launching this new channel where uh, a lot of these USGA events will appear. And the way these channels really make their money is through their subscriber fee. And they were at stuck, I think, at about 29 cents a subscriber. And they were trying to get that up to a dollar. And so the sooner that this deal got announced, the, the, the better chance they had. Well, they struck out on that. They ended up getting, I think, $0.29 cents a subscriber, which is what Golf Channel gets, which allows them to start out with $265 million without putting on a single program. Uh, and that's a nice thing. But uh, that the USGA felt uh, the need to, to do this for them, uh, knowing – and they, they knew uh, that this would not go over well and this would make them look bad. But – the money is just that important to them, and the relationship with Fox was that vital to them that they were willing to take the hit um, and and uh, and do this. And to me, that's just uh, that's just sad. I, I think that's uh, just does not bode well for a lot of the uh, initiatives we'd like to see happen going forward. It seems interesting, Shaq, because <clears throat> last year when Nager took over and you went to the annual general meeting, I think it was in the February, and he's had some really interesting things to say about. The USGA not being afraid of manufacturers if it came push came to shove with, with legalities and that sort of thing. And he, of course, is a, a lawyer who's argued in front of the, the Supreme Court, which is pretty impressive stuff yeah. in the States. These seem to be extra, a couple of extraordinary missteps since then for he and Mike Davis, who seems like such a switched-on guy for most of the time. I mean, that whole PGA thing was terribly handled from the surprise announcement. I mean, the, they gave them some warning, what, an hour or something, I think, in the end it turned out to be. Uh, and sort of stole their thunder for the week, given that they've already had this acrimonious relationship over the anchoring ban. It's a shocking look for the game and for the USGA, isn't it? And it's surprising that 
some really intelligent guys, the public face of the USGA, seemingly very intelligent guys, could make such sort of basic errors. No, yeah, I think they just got dollar signs in their eyes and they, they got so excited about the, the money and uh, that they just uh, decided that the, the gentlemen that they normally are um, and that they pride themselves in, in being uh, just went out the window and, and um, uh, it's uh, and, and then they're trying to, trying to spin it the way they have and, and uh, Mike Davis hasn't done a very good job of that and uh, I don't think he's been particularly uh, – uh, um, he's probably should just not say anything at all or have just said, you know what, we blew it. We absolutely blew this and we feel terrible about it. It was one of those things. There are things you probably you know don't need to know about or not, they're not interesting, but they're, they're just the way these things work. And, uh, but that doesn't excuse uh, what happened and, and we feel awful about it. And then it would just go away. But he's, now he's going to kind of dig in and – Try to spin it, and all it does is make you kind of want to ask more questions about, wow, this is what's going on here, and and uh, what 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 was uh, you know, tell us a little more about the behind the scenes stuff because the more they keep telling us, the more they they reveal things that uh, that you just go, oh wow, that's uh, they made this decision, they they locked themselves in for twelve years, and they made that decision in forty eight hours, and and then you know a smarter person says, ah, eh, no, they probably knew this offer was coming a lot longer than they did, which of course then gets into some <laughs> issues mm-hmm. with conflicts of interest or uh, uh, stuff that would would suggest the uh, the process was not uh, on the up and up, and um, you know they're really not. Uh, the more you kind of pick it apart, uh, the worse it gets. Yeah, the deal was, I think, is it one point two billion over the twelve years, a hundred million a year? Was that right? Yeah, something in that so general ballpark. So then the question becomes, and and many have, and this is the area I think Clates would be particularly interested in this idea, lots of people say that the USGA are interested in building up a war chest so that at some point in the future, and 2020 has been thrown up as a possible date, they can embark on a program to roll back the the distance of the ball and that they're going to need a lot of money to do that because the manufacturers will take them to court. Is that a possibility, Shaq? Is this what this is about? All this money is ready for this, this fight over the ball. No, I think it's completely dead. I think what this deal said was uh, because if you look at the reason for going to Fox, besides the money, it was uh, these are going to people. These are people who are going to take us to the mainstream and make us more loved and more cool and more hip. Um, and and um, they want to be loved. And Frank Hannigan has said this for years that they'll never do anything uh, serious and and take a real stand on an on an issue that matters. Even though Glenn Nager and Mike Davis are two of the most eloquent spokesmen out there for the need for courses to be uh, the footprint really to kind of be shrunk and, and, and they know it, they're smart, they understand it. And, and, but they're not the only people running this organization. It's a group of 15 and, and uh, there are a lot of lawyers and consultants that they've kind of turned things over to. And uh, those people, they're coming from a marketing world of um, no, you need to, you need to be loved more. You know, our numbers say you're not very popular. And so the Fox, uh, partnership is is that and and uh so there's that element to it there's an element where we have a lot of people who are in business now involved in the executive committee fewer lawyers uh fewer doctors any golfers uh, Shaq? any golfers among uh, there are golfers yes <laughs> and uh and but but few but but people who are not maybe who haven't been around the game as much uh there are more investment types uh, uh, uh hedge fund people there's a little of everything like that and their mentality is uh generally that that you know, when a deal is there, you take the best, you take the most money. You don't, you don't think about things like a relationship with the Golf Channel and how they're going to uh, analyze and and um, and maybe help support you uh, on initiatives. You don't think about how ESPN plays into things. You just look at cold hard cash, and um, and that's kind of what's happened here. And I don't, so I don't see that that mentality translating to oh yes, let's tell the manufacturers. Uh, to that they uh, you know are going to have to start changing the way they uh, they make stuff and we're going to take a little distance away because it's the best thing for golf. I, I just don't see that happening at all now. Just before we we come to that, uh, some of the commenters on your site seem to be suggesting that as a non-profit organization, they don't have a choice about that. Whatever is the highest amount offered on the table, they have to take it legally. Do we know if that's actually true? It sounds well, quite no- feasible. Well, that that would be a general policy, but it's not an act. There's no law that that uh, I mean that there's no there's nothing written that says you have to do this or else you people will be investigated by uh, <laughs> the big nonprofit uh, uh, 
person in the sky that's watching uh, what you're doing. No, I mean, that's that's generally good policy. And that's what the USGA did with the NBC deal um, uh, back in whatever it was, 94. Uh, uh, and uh, they did that then. The difference was NBC uh, was already doing golf and uh, NBC was investing in doing a better job on golf. And, uh, of course, the other difference now is that NBC has the golf channel. Mm. Where, um, whereas Fox is starting two channels from scratch, essentially, and going to put some of the U.S. Open on the big network. And uh, so you've just kind of disabled the whole uh, connection to the core golfer, at least in the United States. And as it's being the United States Golf Association, you would think that would be something that would, would have been a little more important that you couldn't quite put a dollar figure on. But, but uh, and in fact, even, even worse than that, Shaq, the original press release announcing the deal with Fox pretty much just um – no, oh, there's no nice way to say it. They just, just pissed on NBC and said, "Yeah, <laughs> their coverage yeah. basically wasn't up to scratch, and they were looking for someone who could do it better." Which they've since backpedaled on. And I think Mike Davis has said, "We wish we could take a mulligan on that." It was poorly worded, but uh, he has that really was, that wasn't. Oh my gosh, because great. NBC has has done some amazing innovation. Mm-hmm. ESPN's done a few things in their broadcasting that's innovated, but mostly NBC has. Uh, you know, here for Americans, the difference now between NBC and CBS is very noticeable because NBC is really trying to do a lot. And but at the same time, you can only innovate so much. And I, I don't want the U.S. Open to be a place for uh, innovation. You know, I, they're never going to go to players and say, "Hey, can we put a mic on you in the national championship?" You know, it's just not it's not appropriate, and it won't happen. And um, so that was that was just another thing that uh, yeah, I was one who who liked the fact that Nager. Uh, was not a longtime golfer, was not a member of 14 clubs. Um, but this was the first time where you think, ooh, yeah, that uh, not really uh, knowing some of, uh, of how some of the things work <laughs> in the world of golf, uh, whether we like them or not, uh, not knowing that probably backfired a little bit here. And it's not all his fault. I mean, they turned this over to a committee of people. Uh, who negotiated this deal, and they listened to some consultants, and uh, you know that's their fault for for giving those people probably too much power. Indeed, Clayton, I want to come to you because some of the some of the sort of things about this deal are really interesting, and one of them is that thing that uh, that Nager and Davis have both said, which is going to Fox, trying to make the game more mainstream. We hear this uh, an awful lot that you know we need to get more people interested in golf and playing golf. As a player and somebody who's been around the game for a long time. What do you? What's your take on that? You know, does golf need to become mainstream? Does it need to be one of the big sports, or is golf somewhat better off being a bit niche as it always has been? Uh, it's an interesting question. I, I think it's mainstream. I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's tricky. I think you, you know, you get going back to those primes I played the other day. I played with two primes, six amateurs. Four of them were twice a year players. And, you know, does golf need more players who play twice a year? And I don't know. I mean, golf's kind of – golf needs people to understand it, but but you need people to kind of play golf. To, you know, clearly you need to play golf to learn to understand it. But you know, the last thing golf needs is more cart driving, beer drinking, big long driving slashes who go out and play six times a year, which is kind of what – isn't that what main, t- taking it to the mainstream is? That's what the party holes are yeah. about. Yeah, which those is like, what, about, what, yeah. what does golf need more people? Or, 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 you know, does golf just need more people who love to go out there and walk and play golf and think about it and practice and learn to get better and kind of the way it's always been. I mean, golf needs people who, who love to play golf playing and not people who play it for the business reasons or people who play it because there's a chance to drive a cart and drink beer and act like an idiot three times a year. So I'm not sure, and, and golf in Australia is a mainstream sport. Really, it's the, it's the depending on what sort of statistics you, you use in Australia, it's the it's certainly one of the highest participation sports in the country. And 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 for me to, to count it as a sport in that statistic, you, you count people who play more than ten times a year, and people who play tennis more than ten times a year, not just once a year or twice a year. But, you know, golf's a huge sport in Australia. It's a mainstream sport down here. I'm not sure if it is in America because it's more, it's seemingly more expensive to play. But golf's a mainstream sport in Britain. It's a mainstream sport in New Zealand. So, you know, I just don't need to, I don't know that it needs more of 
the connotation of the cart driving beer drinking twice a year slasher. I don't think it needs more of that. No. You know, I think it needs more people who really play golf for, for for the beauty of the game and the great thing that 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 affords the people who really understand it and get it. It's interesting, isn't it, Clates? It seems to me that, and especially in this country, and it's happening in America as well, lots of hand-wringing about people walking away from the game, not as many people playing golf, it takes too long, it's this, it's too expensive, it's that. Golf's in real trouble. It seems to me that what people actually mean is the business of golf, which has grown extraordinarily. There are thousands and thousands more people trying to be in the golf business than right, it right. used to be 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're fighting over the same pool of golfers. That's yeah. how it seems to me. The golf yeah. is fine. It's the yeah. business of golf that's got a problem. Yeah. Who cares about the golf business? I, don't, you know, I wouldn't care if that, this, you know. Well, who cares about the golf business? I mean, the, the, the golf business is people playing golf. It's not selling golf balls and clubs and um, flogging the, you know, the latest inventive driver. That you know, you, you can bet these companies have got already their 2020 driver made or the 2018 drivers already made. You know, it's just about you know continually selling stuff. Golf's about you know it's the Scottish game of going out and playing and. Have we yeah. bred a generation of people, Shaq, for whom golf is actually about buying stuff? There are any number of forums on the net of uh, golfers whose main aim in life is to constantly change golf clubs and talk about shafts and technology and new putter and new drivers and irons and all this sort of stuff, which certainly wasn't golf as I experienced it when I first started to play. Are we old fogies? Is this the new golf? Is this what we talk about when we say golf's in trouble, that we need to sell more golf stuff? That's what it seems like to me. Mm, I don't know. I, I was one of those people who, uh, I, I was a tinkerer, or, or I mean, I, I, no, the, the product cycles have, have expedited. <laughs> so that's the difference. You know, Taylor May just came out with another driver in August, which is... Uh, which falls apart you know, on the practice falls range. Falls apart. Uh, for Charles Howell, yeah, <laughs> yes. that was lightly reported. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I don't have a problem with that group of people where that's their their passion because i think there has always been that i think it just seems more extreme because the product cycles are turning over faster and the the uh the the commercialism is more apparent where you see people wearing corporate uh gear um but i i don't have a problem with that being part of the game i think i think that's uh uh, this that's always going to be there and that's fine if that's what keeps a segment of the golf population engaged and having fun i don't want to take that away from them i don't want to see that lost uh for them but i also don't want to see the entire game compromised uh to try to assuage that that uh that that group that's part of the game and i think that's where you need some regulation and governing body to kind of to uh to be the big picture thinking group and to say uh uh you know to keep things in line and that's kind of what hasn't happened and they know it's it's a it's a tough battle to try and balance all those things and um just just as much as people those people find uh you know us going out and playing with hickories or uh other parts of people who play different kinds of golf weird um yeah, I just I think the beauty of the sport is there are a lot of different formats, there are a lot of different ways to play, a lot of different courses and and income levels and and uh, golf experiences and um, the key is trying to keep that and and um, but that becomes increasingly more difficult to do uh, when all these things like all these different costs go up for uh, just the basic footprint of any kind of golf course. Mm-hmm. Indeed. What about the idea of this whole idea of mainstream and innovating the coverage and, and those sorts of things? What are, are there dangers with that? What are we talking about trying to do? Does golf need to be mainstream? I mean, I know football is the game in America and all things pale next to football, but where does golf stand? Does it need to be that much bigger? And that's what this FedEx Cup's been all about the last six or seven years, is this trying to eat into that some of that football audience and that time of year? Well, sure, it'd be nice if more people watched, but uh, the the fact is that there there are four times a year where more people are going to watch than they normally do, and that's the majors. Just like people tune into tennis who don't play tennis, and uh, they tune into the, the the Grand Slam events then, and that's that's great. And uh, I I think this uh, I mean golf's really in danger of just completely oversaturating everybody with too much. Um, I mean, I I will try to watch a little of this playoff this week, but it is just not an interesting course. It's uh, the format's not very interesting, and we just we've had such great golf this year, and it just kind of comes at a time when 
you know, other sports go away, and we just golf never goes away. And I think it's going to be very hard to ever go mainstream. I mean, I'm always for innovation and telecasts and things that make it more uh, compelling to more people. But ultimately, it's it's a niche sport, and it's going to be hard to uh, to really get past that. And and you know, the people who the companies that are involved in golf, they're fine with that. They they. They're more than happy to reach mostly uh, middle uh, middle class, upper middle class, uh, and wealthy people uh, with their their advertising and. Mm. Um, so I, I your, uh, the golfer profile in America, Shaq, I think for advertising purposes is a fifty to a forty five to sixty year old male earning a hundred thousand plus. I think that's your basic. Yeah, they're not they're it? not real interested. In, I mean, they like reaching them, but they <laughs> they may want to get younger. Mm. Yeah, interesting stuff. Just on the whole TV thing. Uh, Clates is the last thing I'll sort of talk about. Mm-hmm. We talked about sort of trying to make innovate the coverage and that sort of stuff. As a, and as a player, you're saying the microphones and that sort of thing doesn't work. As a TV viewer and player, what does work? What would you like to see golf on television? Do you think the coverage as we have it is fine? I must say, I'm a huge fan of the Pro Tracer that we see because you see the shape of the shots, and I think that's really interesting. In a golf forum I'm a member of, there was a whole thread about that just recently, and everybody seems to think that's a good idea. Is there room for more of that sort of stuff on golf coverage on television? Tell I'd love to see. I'd love to see Mac O'Grady on golf, analysing golf swings. I'm tired of these guys yeah. who who seem who know nothing about technique, or or who brush over it, or, or who see a shot. They see a guy duck hook it, and then they analyse the swing, and they say, "Well, you can see." No, show me the swing. The commentator doesn't know where the ball goes. Tell me where the ball goes. Mm. So I, I, I think the level of analysis of technique is a place where you can really make it interesting because there are lots of geeks out there who love that stuff, talking about equipment. Mm. But there are, there are more and more people now who are really into technique and how it works. And if, 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 if you had a guy like Mac, and Mac's one of the few guys that could do it, analyze golf wings and do it really well and talk about how it's working and draw the lines and the planes and the angles and this, this is how this guy's swing works and here's how that works. But then I think that'll be amazingly interesting. But of course, Mac's not going to do it. But you know, he would be. I mean, that would make it so much more interesting to watch. You know, at least for me, talking about the technique because that's one of the most interesting parts of golf is how so many different things have worked over the years and how different players have used different methods and how they all work and and no one explains that very well. I mean, perhaps Fowler could do it. He doesn't seem to do it much, but yeah. The, there's a guy called Wayne, De, Wayne DeFrancesco. Has anyone seen his site? No. He, no. He, play, he played the Asian tour for years. Um, and he's got his own site where he draws the lines and he analyzes the swings and he's brilliant at it. And he, and he tears these commentators apart. He said, here's Johnny Miller talking about Tiger's dip. So let's draw some lines on the swing. So he takes Hogan's swing and he draws the line on his head at a dress and at the top of his backswing and at impact and it goes down. And he said, now here's Tiger. And he, and he draws the lines and it goes down exactly the same amount. He said, now here's Johnny Miller. And look, and lo and behold, here's Johnny Miller's swing at, the, at a dress and a top of his swing at an impact. And the lines are all exactly the same. So he says, Johnny, what are you talking about? And he, te- he just tears these guys a new one every time. So, so, you know, his site's terrific for analyzing goal swings. It, it, it's kind of, you can say it's laborious, but, but it needs to be. I mean, clearly you can't spend 10 minutes on a swing on a golf tie cast, but, but, but he goes for these guys' swings and he explains what's happening. He draws the lines. Here's how Samson's swing, swing works. It, you know, here's the shaft angle of the dress. Here's the shaft angle of the impact. Here's where his head is. Here's what his hips did. And, and so it's, I mean, for me, that's great stuff. And Mac could do that on his ear. Did uh, M. Clayton feature on that side anywhere? No, no, Have your no. swing been taken apart no, and no, back no. together again? No, but... Uh, but but he's got all the great players on there. He's got Snead and Nicholas and all those guys. It's a, you know if you're into that stuff, it's tremendous. And he just draws the lines and says, well, you know, and he said, well, here's what Brandel Shambly said about Tom Watson's swing. And well, well, actually, it was Frank Nobolo. And, and they were comparing Watson's swing in '77 to Watson's swing in '85. And Frank said, well, you know, he's tightened his swing up. And of course, he put the two swings on the screen. He's, and his swing was actually longer in '95 than it was in '77. So I was like. You know, that would be more interesting for me. But I kind of like watching golf on TV. I mean, it's, you know, it's um, (laughs) I'm a bit the same. I I find it very soothing. Uh, A bit of architecture stuff might be interesting. Clades, can that be done well? It's it's difficult. You're one of the few, I think, who can make golf architecture interesting to those who don't naturally think about it. Um, But that sort of thing might be the the field that golf is played on because it's so unique in that way. All 
all football fields, cricket pitches, they're all the same, aren't they? Basketball they are. courts, tennis courts. Golf is definitely not. And it's always intrigued me that it, has, that it hasn't been more a part of coverage. They'll pay sort of passing um, sort of mention to, you know, this golf course was designed by. We get a lot of that on American yeah. coverage. But we don't get much actual analysis of the holes and how they work and why they work and what's the strategy of them, do we? That might be interesting too. Well, it would be, but it would be difficult in America because the fellows are all kind of 25 <laughs> yards. I mean, if we can divert to the Stolheim Cup, that was a fascinating golf mm. course to me because there was so much of, you know, the bunkers weren't in the rough, the fairways were wide, there were clearly different shots in different parts of the fairways and you had to control what the ball did once it hit the ground coming into the green. So you could talk about that architecture all day and talk about how how and Cranch designed that course to, you know, the holes to be played in different ways. But if you want to talk about the architecture at Oak Hill, what are you going to talk about? <laughs> it's a yeah. pretty brief segment, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, so, so you can talk about, I mean, I've, I've played Muirfield a decent amount. When you see that bunker at the 15th hole, I've only, I think I've only ever played 15 into the wind. That bunker at the 15th hole, Jeff, is what, 30 or 40 yards short of the green? That one they were driving yeah. to in the end? Mm-hmm. You know, and you play, you play the golf course, and you what the hell is that bunker there for? How can that bunker ever have any purpose? Then you see it downwind, and the bunker's right in play because you've got to land just over it to kind of bounce the ball up onto the greens. So, you know, that's... Nobody the, did that, by the way. No one did that. But, you know, <laughs> there's a bunker that if you play the golf course, you kind of think it's a completely irrelevant. What the hell is that bunker there for? Then, then the wind changes. Well, one, they can drive it into it. Yeah. Some guys just took that option and drove into it and tried to get it up and down out of there. But you see how relevant that bunker is when it's downwind that you, you, you need to play with that bunker in, in, in terms of that thing's right in play with your second shot. And, and yet it's 30 or 40 yards short of the green. But there's none of that at Oak Hill. No, that's, uh, that's yeah. very true. Look, you mentioned the Solon Cup, and wasn't it fabulous to see Shaq players standing 70 yards apart, left and right side of the fairway, facing completely different golf shots into greens? It was magnificent to watch that, uh, that Solheim Cup on that course, wasn't it? Particularly being a play and all those things. It was a wonderful – nobody played out of a, somebody else's divot all week, I don't reckon. No. No, the whole thing was, was really uh, awesome viewing. Uh, of course, the team events are great on any golf course, but – uh, the setup was phenomenal. They had some great hole locations where the, 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 the players could kind of feed the ball in. And then the women just came through with some, some really awesome shot making. And, um, uh, and then the coverage, I don't know what, what kind of feed you guys were watching on, but, and whether some of the, I know some of the camera angles were definitely designed to capture the, the design of the course. Um, uh, and then I think some, because of environmental areas, they were forced to be just not the usual tower right behind the green. So they were offset a little bit. So you could actually kind of get a feel for, for the shot that the player faced. And, 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 uh, and then they had some cool aerial shots. I mean, the whole thing just, uh, it showed when you put good TV people on a good piece of architecture and then the players come through with, with shot making and, and strategy and using the strategy at, uh, it's just great viewing. I didn't get any press release on the ratings, so I doubt they got a, a big number. But uh, if you watched, it was it was incredibly compelling. Oh, absolutely, it was, it was engrossing. Even though it was eighteen to ten, it didn't. If one, it wasn't as much of a route as it seemed like, um, just because on the last day there were the U.S. had a, a chance early on there to, to mm. run the table on singles. But uh, but it just was. Even though it was a route, it was just it was just so compelling. Now, speaking of routes, and we're clearly three old blokes the way we've been banging Uh-oh. about the ball goes too far, et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk about teenagers. One of the absolute standout performers at the Solon Cup, Clates, was Charlie Hull, 17 years old, finished runner-up in her first four professional starts, 17 years old, four professional starts, think about that, then gets a captain's pick for the Solheim Cup. Uh, she is, I think, uh, in the top 10 this week at the Canadian Women's Open, as is the defending champion, Lydia Coe, who must be 16 by now, Clates. Charlie Hull is... She shot 71. She's tied for 17th in the Canadian Open. Lydia Ko is one off the lead, 201 after three rounds, 70, 65, 69, 67. She's uh, 16, Clates, 16. She's 16. <laughs> and well, def- defending champion. So she was 15 when she won it last well, year. What's going on in golf? How does this happen? Well, I watched a Duffer chip at the first hole at Royal Canberra this year on the 10th hole, the first hole she played at the Australian Open. And that might be like the double eagle at the Masters, Clates. You might be one of the few I people who was there to see the last shot she duffed. Yeah, she duffed a chip and missed a 10-footer and bogeyed it. Then I think she was six under after seven or something, but shot 63. I mean, she doesn't miss a shot. She, she's not particularly long, but she's only, only a little kid. But, 
I mean, she plays. I mean, this is incredible stuff. She's a defending champion. She's 16 years old. And she's one off the lead, and she's probably going to win tomorrow. Yeah, 23 I mean, of the 24 I, I, Solheim I, I, Cup players in the field. I mean, she's an extraordinary player. Um, and how does it happen? Why did you well, know, we've always had good young players at some point, but this is extraordinary. We got Jordan Spieth at the age of 19 winning on the PGA Tour. You got um, you got uh, Charlie Hull at the age of 17 playing in the Solheim Cup and dusting up Paula Creamer, no less five and four. Yeah, Thank sure. you very much, which was pretty <laughs> yeah. extraordinary stuff. We've got Oliver Goss won the WA Open out here in Australia last year at the age of 19 in a playoff of another over another amateur who's. The ancient age of 22, Brady Watt was the one. Who he beat in the semi-final of the the US Amateur. Amateur, And then who went on to caddy for Oliver in the the final of it. Um, So young, Clay, she'd been around the game. What were you like at 16, 17, 18? Can you think of anybody in your career who might have been ready for this sort of golf at that age? Uh, No, it was impossible. Well, well, you know, Nicholas was great at 16 Mm. and – Manuel Ballesteros always told me that the best golf Seve played was when, from when he was 14 to 17. He said, we should have seen then. He was incredible. <laughs> so so Seve was good young, but not coming out and competing like this. I mean, well, Seve was 19 at Birkdale, so that was really the you – know, I suppose that's been the teenage benchmark. So what's happened, I guess, is the question, Clay. why. Well, I know – well, I don't know. Lydia Coe's teacher, her brother is the, green, is the assistant greenkeeper at Victoria. And I've spoken to him a little bit about it. And, and, and I suspect she's grown up with a track man and those machines and she knows the numbers, she knows the, the angles. and the. So technically they're much uh, more advanced than we were because they've got cameras and track men and they, you know, they kind of get to put the whole thing together much easier and quicker than we ever did, which was just fu- it was sort of fumbling experimentation really. That, that was how people learned golf in, in the era prior to this one. So – and. I've seen Brady Watt work with his teacher. I mean, he's got an indoor range and he goes upstairs and he puts a computer on and puts the video camera on and, you know, he learns the, he learns the swing that way. I mean, I think there's a trap in thinking you can learn to play golf that way, but you can certainly learn the swing that way. So, so clearly the way ahead is to learn the swing using the technology and the cameras and the track men and then learn how to play golf on the golf course. And, you know, that's when we go back to that Chinese kid who, you know, the, the eight-year-old kid we were talking about whose father's pulled him out of school and he's learning how to play golf. You can learn how to, te- to swing and technically play, the, play golf, but can you actually learn how to play golf that way? And the kids who are going to be the great players in the future will mix the technique with the, the ability to play the game, I think. But, you know, clearly, clearly Lydia Coe at 16, can, she can play the game. You know, she can compete and she's, she's calm and she's, you know, what, what an incredibly calm demeanor and clearly a quiet confidence, in, you know, about the game and what she does and she's terrific at it. Well, it is – the Canadian Women's Open, Shaq, is I think – well, you'd, you'd call it the women's sixth major just about, wouldn't you? Sixth major. It used to be the fifth major until this year. It's just become yeah. – 19 of the top 20 in the world in that field last year when she won it at 15. 19 of the top 20 players in the world in that field. I mean, I think when she won it – at Oatlands at the New South Wales Open there, we thought, that's pretty amazing at 14 to win a professional tournament. And it was, but it was not a field anything like that. But the Canadian Women's Open, Shaq, that is just extraordinary stuff. That would be like a 15-year-old a winning, I don't know, one of these playoff events virtually, wouldn't it? I mean, it's it's just amazing. Have you got any thoughts as to why we're seeing these kids? Here? I mean, when Tiger turned pro at 21, we thought that was amazing and had so much success so early. I think that sort of shifted the bar. And we've since had McElroy and Fowler, and we've now got Jordan Spieth at sort of 19. But we just seem to be getting younger and younger and younger. And as Clayton says, it can't all be just about the technique, can it, Shaq? I mean... Well, no, Jordan Spieth is uh, is sort of a natural. He doesn't really have a technically uh, um, perfect swing. He doesn't have a, a swing that's come from... from um, um, a, Working with video and launch pads, I mean, I'm sure he's done some, but he's he's kind of a natural. If you watch him play, you you uh, you see that pretty quickly, just in his footwork and and uh, kind of the way he lashes at it, and and uh, uh, so you can't really. Uh, there are exceptions in that way, and I you know I of course blame the equipment uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways, which I I, I do think it has um, made it probably easier for. Uh, for, for people to uh, to come along and develop faster. Some of it is just people are developing faster in general um, in a lot of different ways. They're more worldly. Uh, technology and, and other ways has made them uh, 
uh, allow them to just kind of learn about uh, life and different things uh, faster. And I don't know if it's it's all uh, great for golf because I do worry that a lot of these uh, will will um, you know we'll see a lot of burnouts because um, I mean tennis is the example where we've seen it happen and. Mm. Um, and and golf is uh, not maybe as physically grueling as as tennis can be, but it's also uh, more time consuming, more of a year round sport in in a lot of ways. I mean, tennis is it's not that it's not year round, but it's just that golf is it, it takes a lot of time, and so it's very easy to see people burning out. So that would be my 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 gravest concern you, you fear for uh, with the champions all. tour in the future shack is that what i'm hearing that here? was not actually part of my thinking <laughs> anyway, but uh, i we don't we might not have a champions tour in I, 30 years i don't think the champions tour has much of a future <laughs> just uh, because the group of pga tour players now who are making a lot of money i don't really see them i don't see phil and tiger uh, i mean we've already seen it with norman and faldo they don't play the champions tour they don't care and they don't need the money and and uh although norman they might be they, the... they got they had their competitive day and they've they've moved on Ooh. to other things but um so yeah i don't i don't think it's uh it's got much of a future but we might see Norman uh, so, hitting the uh, U.S. Open commentary, though, Shaq, which is what something I meant to yeah. mention earlier. Might be replacing uh, Johnny Miller when the Shaq the goes. The back. icon, the icon, yeah, the, the, I, I, the living icon, being a living icon. Was that wasn't that the yes, line? Yes, that was that was the line. And somebody tried to claim I took that out of context, and I just rolled my eyes. You uh, have to go listen to it. He, uh, he's talking a, about himself and his brand, and it's a classic, isn't it? It really was special. Yeah. I, I, so I, yeah, he's fine. He'd be a good commentator. He'd have he'd have gravitas, and yeah, I think he'd be I've uh, him in the booth a couple of times. I think he'd be fine. I don't think he would. You know, Johnny Miller is great in a way that he provokes thinking and discussion, and I think he sometimes makes ridiculous comments, and then sometimes I think he's uh, he's right. But that's and that's what a good commentator does. And, and Norman would probably. I don't know if he'd be as controversial as Johnny, but uh, he might be. Yeah, okay. he's pretty, he pretty opinionated. He doesn't exactly. He doesn't lack an opinion, and uh, that's sort of that's the Johnny Miller stick, isn't it? Is to have an opinion and make sure everybody sure knows that makes what good it is. television. Yeah, absolutely, oh. exactly. Yeah, who wants to uh, to listen? Fascinating stuff, Jensen. We could probably talk uh, more all day, but we uh, we won't take any more time. It's been uh, fabulous to have you guys aboard, and hopefully, we'll be doing it again shortly. We've got a couple of uh, guests in the in the in the mix. Shaq, that we won't reveal yet, but we're hoping to get a couple of uh, – because it was great yeah. to have Matt Goggin and Jeff Ogilvie. I think that's really yeah. inspired It was great great having them along. So Yeah, I heard from a lot of people how much they enjoyed hearing those two talk and how much more of an appreciation it gave people uh, for what uh, interesting people they are. It's Just, you know, what, it's, a, it's a lovely oh. backhander for us, isn't it, Shaq? How interesting it was to listen yeah. to Goggin and Ogilvie. Well, no, I, hey, I, that's I'm fine with that. If that's <laughs> if too. people uh, if they get a new appreciation of them and they think a little less of us, that's just fine with me. As long as they're listening and enjoying it. That's right. Well, we've got a couple of others in the works, so we'll, uh, we'll look forward to hopefully bringing those uh, a little bit uh, quicker than this episode came around. So apologies to the listeners who were waiting to hear for that. But let's wrap it up for today. Mike Clayton down here in Melbourne. Been great to talk to you as always, Clayton. Thanks for taking the time. Pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. And uh, obviously to you, Shaq, over there in the States. Great of you to come on board as well. Most enjoyable. All right. Thank you, Rod. And that wraps it up for State of the Game. Looking forward to doing it all again in the near future, hopefully with a couple of guests, as I said. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.